if you didn't want to wear a tie, you had to wear a suit coat. You know, like that was like the dress code. The three piece minimum. I totally yep, yep. get it. Puff yeah. Links, the whole nine yards. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's how. Where is all that stuff? I feel like I, I had it. And I, I think a bunch of tweakers stole all my clothes. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Justin. And this is Laura. And it's count time. Your four o'clock stand up count. I love tattoos. Oh, yeah. And I know that that's a thing. It's a huge thing. <laughs> and it's, I think it's one of the biggest money makers, too. You know, like, I mean, oh. and money spenders. You know, aside from drugs, like, tattoos are going to be the most costly thing that people do in prison, generally in the feds. And it's not something I did as much. I did get a couple in there, but it's what people do in the feds is get their whole bodies done. You know, you, you're going to have every inch covered. You would think that the staff members would notice like, oh, this person didn't have sleeves coming into prison, but they do now going out. <laughs> Not with the no. 130 staff. Or well, no. And number two, they don't care. No, no, of course not. So that does make me question back looping around sure. to having um, a side business. Sure. One, do you have... I assume you have people who just do it on the fly, right? Mm -hmm. But then you must have people that do it like that. That's is what they're their, known for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is their. I've I don't seen want to some say of the passion, best but. artists I've ever seen okay. in prison. I have to understand. Is it really pen ink? Like, can you please no, explain? Soot. Oh, the ink that they make and what they do is they burn. A wick underneath a metal bunk. Mine isn't done with that. Like mine was done at a camp. So like I had real tattoo ink, you know, that was brought in that mm. I did it with. Uh, people, I think, have used pen ink, but it doesn't. It doesn't stay. Like it's not something that a serious person would get. I knew. I knew a single person who had a makeshift tattoo done mm -hmm. with pen ink. Yeah. And did um, it look good? No. No. It did not. But I didn't know if, right. if that was a common so, thing. I think that's probably just a What I'm going to get is I'm going to have my Sully send in a picture of himself. When you say Sully, you mean your cellmate? Somebody, yeah. So I lived with him in Forest City, Arkansas, and in Marion, Illinois. So like we lived together for almost three years. He's a dude that I just I really admire. He's a great guy. And he's from McAllen, Texas. And he's just got a cool life. And uh, so anyway, he had a guy at Forest City. It was in Forest City, Arkansas. And as far as like places to do time, like it really wasn't that bad. And uh, they left you alone there. You know, they didn't really care about what you were doing as long as, you know, you weren't stabbing anyone or getting into fights or things like that. You could do pretty much whatever you wanted. And uh, so... Small detail. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of times the cops there were really easygoing. You know, like they weren't, they weren't on nothing. They weren't trying to, you know bust you you know there was a couple you know definitely you there's always a couple at every prison it's usually the new hires they wear you know these t-shirts that say federal officer now they can't say federal agent because they're not a federal agent a lot of times that's your average prison guard i don't mean that in a blanket way you know if i was to become a prison guard i would have probably been a very corrupt prison guard and i would have been able to you know i would have just gone there because it would have been an easy way to make money. You know, like I would have not have to do anything and I would have made really decent money. And then I would have gotten a law enforcement pe pension at the end of the day, you know? Uh, so I would have just let them do whatever they wanted to do. And they'd let me do what I wanted to do. And that's pretty much 90% of, of the staff members, you know? So that goes a long way into letting people kind of do what they need to do to make money. And 
tattooing is not something that you can do covertly. You know, like you, it's not like you can, you know, quickly hide. I mean, you can, like, there's definitely ways to like make it seem like we're not tattooing, you know, like, you know, right here. But what most of the guys would do is they know this officer is going to be on at this time and his schedule for the quarter, because they all go in quarter shifts. So like, you don't have the same officer every single day for years in the same unit because that's that's a security issue because they're going to get too comfortable with the inmates and the inmates are going to get too comfortable with the officer and it's mm-hmm. going to be, you know, they can't have it be that relaxed. So right. plus, you know, even if it's the most hard-ass cop in the place, eventually you've got one cop and you've got, let's say, 300 inmates in one unit, they're paying attention to everything you're doing. You have a certain way you go about doing everything you do, whether you intend to or not. They're literally memorizing your every move. They know what time you do this. They know what time you do that. So they're adjusting their lives and their hustles, their schedules, things like that around your activities and what they know that you're going to be doing at a certain time. You can't win. You know, you, you just can't because you're up against too many people all of which are trying to get over on you in some way. So it's way easier for you to just figure out how to live together rather than trying to be at odds all the time with each other. And I think that's what most of them have realized. Like, I can have a really easy time at work or I can literally go in here and be a cop and be one against a 100 for eight hours. And it's going to be really, really hard. So most of the guys, they were never searching they're required per quarter to do, you know, three searches of people's cells or cubes or whatever, you know, environment you're in uh, per shift. They might walk in, open a locker and close it, you know, and walk out. You know, they're not doing, they're making it look because they're cameras, you know, in a lot of places. Some places there aren't. It just depends on where you're at. Um, but if you're on camera, they're going to want to make it look like they're doing their job, but, you know, they're not going to do their job. So let's say that, you know, I'm a tattoo artist and I'm behind the fence. So I've, I've, I've had to pay somebody to make a, a gun for me. Um, they use guitar string as the needle and uh, they create that. I don't know how they make it, but they got to pay for that to be made. Obviously, you're not going to use the same needle on everybody. You are going to pass that cost down to the person getting the tattoo and that's their needle. So they take it with them. So there are guitars in prison? Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're in state prison or federal prison. Like I know in state prison, a lot of the times they were able to buy their own guitar and keep it in their room or in their cell. In the feds, you they're community guitars, and so like you go to an extension of the yard at Four City, for instance. It was in the building adjacent to the yard is where you'd have pool tables, the music room. You know, you'd have a couple pianos, you'd have uh, guitars, drums, everything, you know, so you get a band together and you can literally, you can record music there, you know, and and I would say it's recorded on tapes still, you know, at this point, you know, but um, I'm not sure if they've advanced beyond that. Um, Probably not. But yeah, so basically the person that's making the needles has to get the guitar string from somebody. And that person is usually somebody who's in charge of inventorying the the guitars, making sure that they're tuned, that they are the, you know, whatever you do, I don't know how to do that, but it's whatever you do to maintain a guitar that's being used a lot, you know? So 
you know, you've got people that might have, they might check out a, the same guitar every single day for three hours a day. That's a lot more use than your average guitar is probably getting on the outside. The person who is in charge of facilities or the staff member is going to hire what they call their orderly and their orderly is in charge of doing their job for them. So that staff member gets to hang around all of his friends all day, wandering around doing whatever they want to do. His orderly is doing his job. His orderly is maintaining his books, uh, ordering supplies, doing all the things like that. Now, not actually getting on a computer and ordering the supplies and stuff, but he is coming up with all the numbers that need to be, you know, like he's staying within budget. He's, he's ordering the different things for the different quarters that they need. I mean, literally doing his job for him. That inmate might have be working for this guy for five years or more. You know, like I knew inmates that have been with the same cop for nine years doing the same job every day. That inmate might have a 30-year sentence. You know, he's not going anywhere. Neither is the cop. So it just works. Typically, those jobs, though, they're grade one. So they make $100 a month. And that's with a bonus. So he's got a good position. But on top of that... He has access to all the guitar strings. He has access to all the different things. And so he's selling those different things to make his money. So that tattoo artist is passing on that cost down to to the inmate that's getting the tattoo. You know, so it's like, okay, you got to buy your own uh, needle. It's $12, you know, that's actually pretty reasonable. You know, like you can't get it. You can't make it yourself. Now the ink uh, in this particular prison, from what I understand, was brought in by a staff member. And the exchange was, the agree, the agreement was that the guy that did the best tattoos on the compound, and I mean, there's a waiting list for this guy. His, uh, in order to get on his waiting list, you had to send $500 to his books. So you had to figure out a way to get that money to his people to put on his books because you can't put it directly on his books. You know, from your, your family member or supporters putting a consistent amount of money on your books every single month. Well, all of a sudden that person can't randomly put money on someone else who comes from a completely different part of the country. Cause you have to remember we're all being shipped all over the place. So I might be in forest city, Arkansas with a bunch of people from Minnesota and a bunch of people from Illinois, a bunch of people, you know, that's why we all ride in cars different. That's what they call it. You know, you ride with your own people. So like I'm going to be with the Nebraska car or I'm going to be with the Iowa car or the Missouri car. And that's just the group of people from that particular state or region that all kind of ride together. So it's not like a, they're never at odds with really anybody. You know, it's just people stay together, you know, with their own people. And then of course by race as well. But uh, you might have to get a hold of somebody who has a phone in there. And that person might have paid eighteen hundred dollars probably to get that phone is what an average flip phone costs. So wait, is this call people at their their leisure now? Um, is that what you're talking about? You're talking no, about- like you're never able to purchase a phone that you just use yourself unless that has dramatically changed. Like I mean, so I know that they have tablets that they're able to send messages and stuff to you, like in the mm-hmm. state. Yeah, those are connected to their servers and heavily monitored. Like they're not able to just get a Verizon flip phone and call whoever they want. You know, okay. like well, that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay, so so when you're saying someone has paid eighteen hundred dollars, for example, for yeah. a flip phone to yeah. get in, is that also coming from a staff member? Yes, for sure. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to shove a flip phone up your, you know. Is that see? And I always thought that was just like a myth. Like that no. wasn't. Oh, okay. That's reality. Here we have it. And that's not the full 
that's not the cost like of the tattoo. Like that's just to get in his books. Like the gentleman who is making five hundred dollars to get on a waiting list to, for him to tattoo mm-hmm. someone. Um, forget how how long did you say the waiting list? I mean, I I know guys that were on it for over a year before, and they actually had paid the money and then got sent to another prison. And I mean, you're not getting that refunded to you. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like. It, so it's five hundred is a deposit. Yes, yeah, and it's non-refundable and <laughs> no responsibility on behalf of the person. You know, actually, the guy that was doing the tattoos had a whole bunch of people that had given him deposits, and then he actually ended up getting shipped to a camp. So he got sent off to do his next couple years at a different facility. And there's no secrets in prison. Like if you are all of a sudden about to leave, trust me, everybody knows it. You're not going to just sneak out of there. I know that when I got transferred out of there to uh, Marion, I owed I was a couple hundred bucks to somebody for something or other. And I had like a week to make this money and to get it to him because I'm not going to leave a debt, you know, at a prison, you know, like so you for- never know when you're going to pop back up. Okay. And, okay. So I was going to say how there are so many people that I've, I've actually come across even who are like, I don't care if I owe you money. Goodbye. Yeah. So that's, it's evidently not the case in prison. No. And you're, is that because you I would say it's one of the number one again? things that I think it's just a basic level of respect. You have to okay. understand where, what people are going through to make the money that they make, you know, like you wouldn't want that done to you. Right. Um, you don't know how desperate that person is. Well, there we go. <laughs> That's someone with more respect in prison than people outside. Oh, sure. So it sounds like is respect the number one form of currency in, in prison? I wouldn't call it currency. I would just call it the number one, uh, the, the, the number one rule in prison is having respect for your fellow rule man. zero yeah yeah it's it's, it's the zero. cornerstone of being uh, of having a a smooth ride and i mean it, it builds to a level that's a bit irrational at times you know like if you see me out in public i mean every time i walk by somebody i'm excuse me you know like i'm literally like making sure they understand that I am sorry that I might be walking by you right now. I hope I haven't inconvenienced inconvenienced you in any way. You know, it's, it's to that level. Like you have to just be always on your guard because you don't know what's going to set that person off. You know, you could be, you could be the coolest guy in the world, but he hates it when somebody blocks him, you know, watching TV for even five seconds, you know? So, but he's okay. As long as you acknowledge that, you know, that that bothers him. It's almost comical to a certain degree. Like if you were to just observe, you know, a room full of convicts interacting with each other, you know, like (laughs) it's the most calm, respectful thing you could ever, you know, imagine (laughs) like visiting. I mean, typically, but I mean, there's also, it's also loud, you know, but once lights are out, it's not, you're not going to have a guy down the hall screaming down the hall at midnight, you know, because his own people will be required to deal with him. You're going to go talk to the shot caller and the shot caller is going to take care of it within that group, you know, and that's obviously in the mediums on up, you know, it's not necessarily everywhere is like that, but you got to start somewhere. Most people don't start at a camp, you know, you got to work your way to that level. Yeah. Respect is key. It's number one. So out of curiosity, yeah, how I, much does that tattoo artist make per year? I don't have any idea like what the, the final number is, but I know that like just he paid $500 per session. And I mean, he had multiple sessions. I mean, he got his entire back done. 
This guy took pictures of his kids and they look identical to the pictures that you would get in the mail, you know, of your family. And he would put them in different scenes on his back. There's guys I saw with like colors that were just spectacular, but mostly it was all done in soot, you know, especially in the the lows because it's cheap by the world standards. I mean, I'm going to get a sleeve done out. Here's going to be 1800 bucks. Oh, yeah, especially depending on what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, to get a good artist that knows what they're doing and that has a great reputation, like, it's going to be the same deal. You know, there's going to be a waiting list. You're going to wait till he has time to do it. And then once you get in, you know, you're going to have session one, session two, because, you. I mean, the shading alone is going to take, you know, a whole day. I mean, these guys sit there all day. And you got to pay the jig. You got to pay somebody who is literally posted up down the hall watching for... The officer, because the officer's okay with it, but you have to have somebody watching because it has to look like I'm not, I'm doing my job. He's not going to actually bust you. And this is all agreed on ahead of time. You know, like this is all, you'll go up and you'll talk to the officer. Hey, I'd like to tattoo. Are you okay with that? Officer will say, yeah, I'm fine with it. Or no, I don't want that done on this shift. Like I know I'm, the warden's coming in here at this time, you know, and I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to have to deal with it. So, okay. So out of respect for that officer, you won't do it during that shift. And your business is being able to do it in peace, not have to be bothered, not have to be on the lookout, acting like you guys are doing nothing, you know, in the, in the room. Like it's just, you know, the buzzing, you know, like, I mean, it's a motor uh, that is usually taken from a clippers, which they don't sell in the feds anymore for that reason. Um, (laughs) And that's what sucks. You know, when they take something away, it's, it's taken away forever. You'll never, ever get it back. So anyway, this guy, I know that he had multiple people, that he was working on at any given time. And these guys, they all, I I was thinking like, if I was going to be at this prison for a long time, like I would definitely get on this guy's list. Like, because a lot of times people just do it out of boredom. Like, and I thought about it. I really did. But I also, I just thought if I come out like completely tattooed head head to toe, like it's just not me. Like I'm not going to be able to pull that off. It's not who I'm, who I'm going to be. For the rest of my life. Like, I still want to be able... I mean, I'm not saying that, like, the world we live in, you can't have sleeves and be in a professional, you know, environment. You can. Oh, it depends on the company. It does. It <laughs> depends on the company. It depends on the people you're around. And honestly, it's just about first impressions. It's about getting in into the door. I'm already going to have a hard enough time as a three-time felon uh, getting a position that I yeah, want. I, I don't think tattoos will help you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it would not help the situation. And now when I disclose my criminal history it's kind of not i would say a shock but it's it's unexpected you know from people it's certainly unexpected i mean i know when my husband and i met you our kids were just friends and but you were our daughter's best friend's dad um after you had seen a photo of me with my grandfather that you were very familiar with that with that looked like i was like oh i know this you were so polite you didn't say anything about it so which which was kind of funny but but no matter how we would have initially met you with our first impressions, you'd still be our kid's best friend's dad. Sure. But not to everybody, you know, like. Right. Yeah. And that's something that I, I still struggle with. Yeah. For the record, do you want to tell our audience what you did before? Yeah. I was in new construction, residential sales in New York for eight years. And I started, I was the youngest person to ever be hired at the Corcoran Group, which is one of the biggest firms in New York City. And so I started as a assistant to a broker. um, And then I was licensed. I 
And then I worked my way up to a senior associate when I was laid off in 2008. But yeah, so I... So, I, so you did well. I, don't I know did well and, and, I, and I wore a suit every day and, yeah, you know... I, I don't know how tattoos would have fit into that image. I mean, it's... It wouldn't have. If you're wearing a suit, they can't yeah. necessarily see Right, they can't see it. It's true. It's very hot, though, to have to wear a suit all day in New York <laughs> all the time. But, uh, no, I, I definitely... If you didn't want to wear a tie, you had to wear a suit coat. You know, like, mm-hmm. that was, like, the dress code. The three-piece minimum. I totally yep, yep. get it. Puff yeah, links, the whole nine yards, yep. Yeah, yeah, that's how... Where is all that stuff? I feel like I... I had it, and I, I think a bunch of tweakers stole all my clothes. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when when my husband and I met, he wore a minimum of three pieces yeah. every single day. He yeah. was very well kept. I know Jackie, she first was attracted to me based on me wearing a suit every day. And it's I mean, sad that it didn't it. work out for her. <laughs> I, I kind of get it. I, I feel yeah. a kinship with yeah. her. She, oh, man. I worked with very high-profile you know, clients, and... Uh, I mean, it was, it was every day was having to put on airs, you know, with this, that, and the other. And it was not something I was raised in. I was raised in a, you know, conservative, normal, middle-class, you know, family. I had to be up there, you know, with these people. And like, we negotiated millions without even really thinking about it, without it, you know, like, oh, yeah, we can give you a hundred thousand dollars off. What is that? A latte a day? You know, like when it comes down to it, you know, when you're (laughs) financing, you know, when you're financing, you know. A six million dollar condo, and you're putting two million down, you know, and you're financing four, you know, like all of those kind of things. So coming from that to you know, hundred thirty thousand dollar houses. Oh yeah, I mean, oh yeah, and that's why change. it didn't work out for me here. <laughs> like, I mean, no. I transferred my license here, and I tried, but I didn't try very hard. And the reason I didn't was because I didn't have to try hard out there, and that was what was so surprising. To me, and this is just the arrogance of somebody in their twenties, you know, in, in the in their early thirties. I moved out there every year. I doubled my salary, just given opportunity after opportunity. And I gotta say, like, I hate to admit it, but there wasn't a whole lot of effort behind it, and I just did really well. So when I was faced with a challenge, all of a sudden I had to like figure it out for myself. It didn't work for me. Like I couldn't translate my experience in New York to Omaha, Nebraska, and I couldn't put in working with the same couple every single weekend, showing them $130,000 homes for eight hours on a Saturday, you know, going to five or six different listings, spending my money, carting them around only to have them, you know, oh, we decided we want to wait or we didn't want to buy this because of the fridge, you know, and it's just, you want to just be like, the fridge doesn't matter, you know, like, and I just, I had no patience for it because it was such an arrogance and such a, you know, just like, I'm better than this, you know, and I wasn't at all. I literally had been given everything. And that's why I took the easy way out and did what I did. And we'll get into that in another episode. But when it came down to it, I never imagined I would end up in prison. So it's actually very, very amazing that I wasn't killed. You know, based on having that kind of attitude, I'm glad that I had several years of being humbled before I ended up in, in an environment like that. You know, because it wouldn't have gone well for me. Because I've seen people that come in thinking that they don't belong there. And I'm sorry, 99% of the people that are in prison deserve to be in prison for something. And I'm not saying that in a, that they deserve the time they got or anything like that. But if our society is based on laws and you break the law, there's consequences behind that. Very few people are innocent, you know, and, and, and are in prison. Like, And I certainly wasn't. I just look at it like 
you know, there's a lot of guys, and it's usually the white collar guys in prison that think that they're above this and they don't deserve to be there. And if you have that kind of attitude, a lot of times you get popped in the mouth right in the middle of the chow hall. Somebody's going to humble you. Produced by Daniel Argabright, music by Elliot Torres and Matt Williams, art by Nick Chalupa at Hikari Studios. Thank you for listening, and just remember, we're all your neighbors.